brought to you by SOCOM Athlete, Cindy. Thank you for listening to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Cindy, this is your host, Jason, and I'm humbled today to bring on a personal hero of mine and an absolute legend in the special operations community and the skydive community. This is Jay Stokes, retired Green Beret, Chief Warrant Officer 4, and the Guinness World Record holder of skydives in a single day. That's a 24-hour period, and I bet our listeners out there can't guess how many jumps Jay Stokes was able to pull off in a 24-hour period. During Jay's time as a Green Beret, which included his 1st Special Forces Group and 7th Special Forces Group, he was selected to be a part of this special mission unit slash a Tier 1 operator on the Green Light Team. For many of those out there, including myself, that hadn't heard of this team before talking to Jay, this team essentially was a highly selected group of Green Berets that was trained to go deep behind enemy lines and detonate nuclear devices. So these guys essentially were ready to go on kamikaze missions. They were the baddest of the bad in the height of the Cold War, basically demonstrating our highest capabilities on the ground as special operations forces. Now, Jay and I actually know each other because he was running the Navy Halo School whenever I went through as a PJ student. As a PJ student, you can go through Army or Navy Freefall School, depending on where their slots And I had two students that recently graduated SEAL training, and I made them make me a promise whenever they got freefall qualified, if I was out there in San Diego area around the same time as them, that they would go do a skydive with me. So sure enough, I ended up being out there to run that San Clemente Hell Day 4 event. And as I'm coming out there, I see Jay Stokes himself, my man, still looking as good as ever, still doing his thing, just as good as ever. And I had to come up and say hi and invite him on the podcast. It's been over 10 years, Jay. It's so good to have you on the podcast, my brother. How are you? I'm doing great. You know what? Thank you very much. It was it was kind of a blast from the past when I saw you and it was like, hey, your hair's growing out. Okay. <laughs> it's all good though. Great. I know you see a lot of students, man. So it's weird. I've been doing this for, well, I've been working here for quite a long time. And it's funny. I take pictures of every student that I work with. Right. So if I'm assigned four students, I get a picture with four students or three students or however it works, or I'll get a picture with the class or whatever. And it's just always uh, exciting. And I've got pictures for the last, what, 12 years or so. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, Jay. Well, we all appreciate you and uh, obviously for teaching us how to skydive safe. So thanks for that, Jay. I want to start this off by letting you guys know that Jay Stokes has a world record that it, it almost seems impossible. And for you math guys out there, if, if you do the math on this, it is doable. Jay, in 24 hours, you got 640 jumps. Is that correct, sir? That's exactly correct. Jay. So Jay, I mean, most guys go through their SEAL career or their PJ career, and and they don't get even close to 640 jumps. You knocked this out in 24 hours. Jake, how did you do this, man? Can you tell us? I'm sure you had a great team, but how did you do this? Well, you start off, like you said, you got to have a great team. And quite honestly, uh, going back in time to 95, when when we tried to do the first record attempt, which, which ended up being a Guinness World Record. So we've done it five times and we were successful five different occasions. And every time you do it, you learn a little bit more about how to make it better, faster, 
uh, how to tweak things, just like any anything else that we do. The one that was the big record, we had 125 volunteers working on the ground. Uh, at any point in time, you'd have 24 to 30 people physically doing something like packing parachutes, like taking rigs off of me, flying airplanes, fueling airplanes, bringing in food, right? Recorders, things like that. So you got a ton of people working just to make one thing happen. That was for me to get out of an airplane. You got a safety on board. Um, ultimately, though, it's a matter of everybody working in sync, right? So the beauty of it was that that because of, of uh, the people that I knew in the sport, I had full sponsorship. So I had aircraft paid for, fuel paid for, pilots paid for, everything was paid for before I ever stepped out of the plane because there's no way I could have afforded it on my own, right? We did it because we wanted to generate uh, revenue for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation and the Special Olympics. And we made a bunch of money for those two uh, charities, which are very near and dear to me. But along the same lines, we gave them uh, quite a bit of advertisement. And uh, so we had lots of news crews came out throughout the day into the evening, and we would always plug them. You know, we'd keep plugging those, those two charities away. Uh, one of my sons is a Special Olympian. He's uh, got cerebral palsy. He still competes at the age of 40, uh, super kid. And uh, so he's, it, that charity is very near and dear to my heart. Special Operations Warrior Foundation. It's one of the best charities out there. Uh, I gotta, I'm got. i going to put a plug in for them because they're a little better than Wounded Warrior. They actually get a B plus on a grading system as far as what they do with the money that's uh, acquired. So, Shout yeah. out to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation and Jay Stokes. Um, uh, thank you for, for sharing that story, Jay. Um, obviously, you had something very uh, personal pushing you and driving you to be able to do that. And uh, Jay, just out of curiosity, um, you said that you had, you had a sponsorship. Ba- basically, all of it was taken care of as far as the fuel, the aircraft, your support team. And then you were raising money um, for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. About how much w- would it cost um, just, to, just to take off in an airplane and, and do a jump and, and kind of all that? What, w- what would just one of those cost? Just one of them cost? Well, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you broke it down... I've got 27 rigs that are, that were basically donated 27 to, parachutes by SunPath, And then uh, parachutes were also donated. Uh, wow. AADs were donated. So a lot of the, the expenditures I didn't have to worry about because uh, they were actually giving me the equipment to use wow. uh, or at least sponsoring me. And in, in in, with respect to we'll let you use it now. We'll take it back later, which is fine too. Um, but it would cost somebody about 150, Okay, in 2006, about $150,000 to do what I did. Wow. And, and Jay, so 640 jumps. Now, just a, a typical military free fall jump. So what you guys taught us back in the school, we would get out around 12,000, 13,000 feet. We'd wave off somewhere around 5'5", five, five, and we'd pull around 5,000 feet and kind of hang out, set up a, a pattern. Um, Jay, I would assume that you were jumping from a pretty low altitude and burning some altitude pretty quick on that canopy and getting back up pretty quick. What, what was the story on that brother? Okay. Real simple. Uh, I was getting out at 2,100 feet, which is as low as I could possibly get out and still deploy my parachute. Uh, USPA requirements is 2000 feet pack opening. So as long as I'm pitching a pilot chute by 2000, I'm good because the pack is going to open. Now, of course the canopy is slow because you're subterminal, right? So that takes about another 800 feet to open. So now I'm down around, what, 1,400 feet? And uh, no malfunctions, just so you know that. No malfunctions, great packers. 
That said, I also had a mechanical advantage on the parachute itself. I had a device or a line attached up to what's called our B cascade interior line. And I could pull down on that and it would just not collapse the parachute, but allow the parachute to come out of the sky really fast without using any uh, upper body strength. Cause you, you're going to do 24 hours. You got to keep your strength up. Right. So that's you don't incredible, want to pull up either, that's for sure. <laughs> and then of course you come into land. Uh, I've already got the quick ejector snap off the chest strap. So as soon as I'm landing, I'm just hitting the two ejectors on the leg straps and walking out of the harness and going to get the next rig on. And for our listeners out there, when Jay says terminal, he's talking terminal velocity. And so your parachute's not going to open as quick if you're not going a certain speed. So he actually had to set up his equipment so that his parachute would open quicker and he could get on the ground quicker, get a new parachute on, get back up on the aircraft and go do it again 640 times total. Jay, what an incredible record, man. Um, that's not going to get beat. And uh, I just, uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on here on the podcast, my man. Okay. Well, Jason, you said do the math, right? Yeah. Let's, let's minutes, hear it. Two minutes, 15 seconds per jump. Two minutes, 15 seconds per jump. Now, if you drop that down to two minutes and five seconds, if you shave 10 seconds per jump off, you can do 700. Now, that sounds easy, doesn't it? What I just said sounds very easy because it's 24 hours. You're going to shave 10 seconds off of each jump. You can do 700. Now, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I'm 64 years old. I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I did the original one. I did it when I just turned 50. So. I got bored. So, <laughs> got to keep up. Well, Jay, uh, just just because of the whole uh, situation and scenario and the heart behind um, why those jumps were accomplished, um, I hope that record never does get broken. And congratulations on that record. And um, Jay, let's rewind a little bit, man. You were a you were a Green Beret, right? Over at First Group, and that I was actually initially I went into Seventh Group at uh, Fort Bragg. And learned the skills of the, the trade, right? Uh, you're going to find this. This is really kind of humorous. So I, I go in the army six days out of high school, right? Because I needed I needed out. I needed to get going. Uh, very uh, poor childhood, if you will. But that that aside, you know, it, what does not kill us, right? So moving forward, I went in the army, went through basic AIT, went to jump school, got assigned initially to the 82nd. I was an infantryman. We did some things there. Then I got uh, into seven special forces group because they had a big recruitment drive. They needed more guys in SF. So I got into special forces and I'm going through training. You're going to love this. So I'm going through training, get through phase one, uh, get through uh, phase two weapons. And they go, well, we don't need weapons guys. We need either demo guys or combo guys or medics. So what do you want to do? And I said, I'll be a, an, I'll be a demo guy. I'll blow stuff up. So they reclassified me as a, at the time as a 12 B and they didn't have the 18 series back then. Uh, now I would, now it would be an 18 Charlie. So they reclassed me, sent me through training, put me back through phase two demo. Right. I come out of there, go to phase three at Robin Sage and get through that. And I knew already where I was going. I was going to what was called a green light team. And uh, so I got orders to go to Halo School right out of phase three. It was hilarious. People were really irritated because I was getting to go to military freefall school and I'd just gotten out of training. I made E5 in 18 months in the military. I was a fast mover. I'd gone to ranger school already. So I punched a couple of other tickets to try to move forward. I was very highly motivated. Uh, I loved the discipline that the Army gave me. 
uh, I was a little bit of a wavered kid. So I really needed that when I, when I came in, I just kind of uh, embraced it. Uh, but moving forward with that in seventh group. So I went to a green light team. Now today it's unclassified, so I can talk about it. A green light team meant that you and your detachment of 12 guys would jump, swim, or walk a nuclear device into a denied area and you would set it off. And they had 0.5 kiloton and 1.5 kiloton yield devices. We're talking man pack. So uh, think about an, an egg shaped device or, or an egg that's cut in half, right? So it's kind of rounded or oval on one end and then the other end is flat. And the, the flat end looks almost like a safe. So you'd open up that end and then it would allow you to go inside of it and, and set your timers so the device could be, uh, it would be detonated at a specific time frame. We didn't have remote detonation at the time, right? You were talking the 70s. So here I am thinking that when I set this device in play and I put that cover back on and I turned that dial and I heard that loud click, I figured I'd get vaporized, right? Because no, no witnesses to, to what just happened. But it's, it's kind of amazed me at the time that we have nuclear devices and we're ready to go into denied areas and, put, and set them up and, and actually set them off. So weird, weird thought process back then. We would never probably do that now. Now, now Jay, um, you, you talked about things kind of being declassified. Um, uh, some of our listeners have heard of MACV SOG um, in Vietnam. Was this maybe some type of extension of that or was this just its own unique special team that was... Yeah, its own special team. Yeah. And we had two teams per group. So seventh group had two teams, fifth group had two teams. Uh, at the time, that's, that's what we had. And they were, we would train. Uh, what was really cool about it was I went to Halo school, then I went to scuba school, you know, so I got those punched out. And because we had to go uh, take the device in, in, in any way, shape or form, right? Uh, that said, though, it, w- it was a weird thought process that we had because we would go to the nuclear weapon storage branch and train for weeks at a time. And you would, uh, you would read over materials. You would set the device up. You would learn how to do different things. Everybody on the team was trained to do it. And, but you couldn't be with the device by yourself. All right. So how do I jump a device in with two people? Well, you, you don't, you jump it in in your rucksack or whatever your combat equipment load would be. When you land, you literally waited for another member of the team to come over before you approached and picked up the device and, and moved forward. Two-man rule applied. Okay, Jay. So let me, let me recap real quick. So <laughs> That's you guys, a lot. <laughs> you're, you're a buck sergeant, E5. You're, you're 18, 19 years old, and you get, you get stationed at 7th Special Forces Group, which at the time was at Fort Bragg. So now it's down, down in, in the Pensacola Destin area, but it's, it's in Fort Bragg at the time. And you get selected for a special team called the Green Light Team. And this team is tasked with the responsibility of taking nuclear weapons in un, un, basically denied areas and, and austere, non-permissive environment. And not only that, you are jumping these, these nuclear weapons in. Is that correct, Jay? Yeah, jumping or swimming because right? we were a scuba team, too. So we could do a lockout of a submarine you know, set up an IBS, you know, inflatable boat, and then over the horizon navigation, or we could swim it in. We could do a dragger mission. You guys are some bad dudes, Jay. So, so Jay, let me rewind a little bit. All right. Okay. Where, where did you grow up, my man? And, and what did you, what was your childhood like? If you don't mind me asking, it seems okay. like every special operator 
has some type of, of challenge or pivot point or something that kind of grooms them to be able to go out and do this? What, what was it like for you, Jay? Well, what's weird is, I, you know, I've never done the stats, but a lot of places that I look at say that most special operations uh, folks came from broken homes. And I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you can do some research on that. But uh, my dad was in the Air Force. I was I was born on Eglin Air Force Base, Florida. Right. Six months after that, we moved to Japan. I'm at Yakota. We're there for a couple of years. We moved from there back to Missouri. In Missouri, my father uh, was a missile site manager. He was a, a, a master sergeant E7 in the Air Force. He was a, a manager or one of the managers on site. And at the time, the Cold War was a big deal. This is the 60s, right? So the big deal was launching nuclear weapons at Russia or whatever. Uh, I would go, we went, it's really weird. I went to a, a Thanksgiving dinner at the missile site. Our family, our whole family went. So me, my sister, my mother, we're all there and I'm looking around and I, I don't get it because I'm so young. I'm seeing guys in flight suits. They got 45s on their hip. They got keys around their neck and I'm not getting it. I'm not figuring this out yet. Right. Because I'm too young. Later after that, I found out that those guys had those keys so they could engage or set in play nuclear devices too. Right. And uh, they had the guns on because if somebody went rogue, they would kill them. They would shoot them. And at the time, that's how it was. So there was a, a huge threat, we thought, from the Soviet Union at the time. And that that was as real as anything else was. But I saw a movie called Failsafe, and it was about stuff like that. And that's when I put it all together, right? And there was also a movie called Dr. Strangelove, which was really a funny, uh, a funny movie with Peter Sellers, but kind of along the same lines. I didn't put that stuff together until then. And at that, at that time, I was thinking, man, that's pretty wild. My dad was working in a facility where they could blow up the world. That's what I thought. So moving forward from there, uh, my dad got out of the Air Force. We moved to Oklahoma for a little while, moved to California for a little while. And uh, in California in 1968 at Paris Valley, uh, they didn't have skydiving then, right? That, that would come a little bit later. But the theater downtown was open. So I saw the Green Berets at that theater with John Wayne. And at the time, it was the only pro-Vietnam war movie that was out there. And I watched it and I went, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. So that's kind of a cliche kind of thing. But in, in effect, that's exactly why I did it. I said, that's who I want to be when I grow up. So here I am, 13, 14 years old. And I'm thinking, I got to get this on. I got to get, get to stepping or else I'm going to miss this war. You know, that's what I was thinking. So Got out of high school, went straight into the army, went straight to, to doing that. But it was all based on that one movie. That's what influenced me the most. You know, things haven't really changed too much when it comes to that, Jay. You hear about so many guys that are attracted to these career fields because of books or, or movies. And exactly. yeah, it's a very important recruiting piece. Um, you know, a lot of guys don't like to, to talk about their military service. Um, you know, we have that brand is the quiet professionals. And, and that's the, the character that we take on. Um, but it's very important to be able to bring on the next um, generation of special operators. And what inspires them the most is seeing what other people have done and being able to know this, this is what I want to do. So yeah. pretty incredible, Jay, you, uh, you got inspired uh, to see it. And you, you talked about broken homes um, being kind of a commonality in operators. You also look at um, military families as well. You see a lot of military families kind of um, pushing, not necessarily pushing, but you see kids going into special operations as well. So that happened to be the case for you, Jay. 
Um, you're 13, 14 years old when you found this out. And uh, when did you actually kind of decide like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk to the recruiter and, and then push forward with it. Well, we, we actually moved from California to Idaho in my junior year of high school. So big change, right? Major change. What's that like four or five moves in your childhood? Oh, a bunch. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. maybe, yeah. Right. It seemed like we were in a revolving door at times, but okay. my father left home, left my mother when I was 11 years old. And that's not, you know what? Things happen. People move on. People have to do what they got to do. Uh, my mother picked up the slack. You know, we ended up moving to other places because it was a little less cost of living, lower cost of living, things like that. Uh, so she was a licensed practical nurse. She would work in rest homes, things like that. And she did her best. Um, but when we moved to Idaho, that was probably where I really turned the corner. So I said, you know what? I, I really want to do this. So I joined ROTC reserve officer training. Corps, right. And, uh, I learned a lot of different things from there and I just get, met some really good people that kind of set me on the right path. And when I went in the military, so when I joined the military, because I had been through ROTC, I was a PFC from the beginning. So I was an E3 is when I went into service because of that. And it just, it was one of those things where, like I said, I excelled because I wanted to excel. I wanted to be that guy. So I would be like honor graduate or, or whatever they would call it at each of the different levels that I would attend. And uh, I just kept it, kept it going. Um, when I got to seventh group, finally, Went to the 754 was the number of the team. It was a a, a halo, what we called a whiskey nine team, halo scuba team. And we did the green light mission. Uh, We ended up coming out of that about two years into my tour tour there. But we still did. uh, We would always do, you know, dive recovery, dive recalls. And we'd do military free fall recalls and things like that. So we always had uh, a pretty good way to keep our skills up. Uh, I got at about the same time, uh, there was an organization called CAG that was coming into existence. Right. And I went, I didn't go through selection because I needed, I felt that I needed to learn my job better at this level, at the, at, at the team level. So that's what I did. I just kept working on the team level. I'm so now I'm about seven years in, I'm an E7, uh, 10, let's say 10 years total time in service. I've got two MOSs. I've been to O&I school. I was the assistant operations sergeant on a team and this warrant officer program came out 180 alpha or special forces technician. So I was in the very first class for the special forces warrant officer guys. I looked at it like I want to stand on a team as long as I can. If I make E8, I'll probably do about three years. I'll probably get promoted E9 out of a job and then I'm on a staff job or as an E8, maybe I'm going to be a team sergeant for a couple of years and then they're going to move me to a staff position. But as a warrant officer, I thought I'll stay on the A team as long as I can. So what I what I did was I I didn't jump ship. I didn't desert the NCO Corps, okay, like some people thought. But I became a warrant officer. Uh, I was in the, uh, the first twelve that were appointed. I was a CW two uh, because I had been an E seven, uh, and then went back to a team in first group at at that point in time. So you're looking at eighty three, eighty four time frame. Uh, first group is is reactivating, going to go back to Okinawa. I wanted to do that anyway. I'd already gotten assigned over there as an enlisted guy to Alpha Company, to the scuba team. But then I took the warrant program. I came back. They reassigned me over to B Company on the scuba team, uh, 125. And then we forward deployed to Okinawa uh, as a group, as a unit. 
And I stayed there a little over three years, had a great time, did some good stuff in Thailand and Malaysia and a few other countries. Uh, just really one of the best tours of your life. It, it, it just, because it was all new. Plus, I got to tell you, nobody knew what to do with us, with the warrant officers. Because we were like, we weren't, we weren't real officers. We were like in the middle. They, they built us because they wanted to have some continuity because we would get a, an officer. We'd get a captain, no three. He'd come in for like 18 months, maybe two years tops. And then he'd walk out. And then we got to train somebody. So with the warrant officer, you had some continuity in the ranks to carry over. Because I saw three changes in Okinawa. You know, we had a, had a team leader. He wouldn't work out. We'd get another team leader. He wouldn't work out. The third guy we got was great. His name was Don Reeves, and he was an extremely talented guy, triathlete. I mean, he fit in really well with us because we were, we were PT animals. We really were. And uh, had a great time in Okinawa, rotated back from Okinawa to Fort Lewis, uh, was in second battalion of Fort Lewis, went to a Halo team then, and uh, just kept on moving, you know, just kept on working. And that's up there in Washington. Is that Washington. correct, Jay? Yeah, it's uh, it's near. I guess it's near nearer to Olympia, Washington, than it is anything else. And how'd you like um, being out on the West Coast? Because that's where you're at now. Is that kind of what what kept you out there, and, and why you think you ended up in California now, or is it a completely different route that, that got you where you're at now? Well, it's kind of weird. I rotated back to from Okinawa in November, right? Of uh, what was it? The eighty-seven. So three, three years and three months, three years and four months, whatever it was. But it's November in Washington State. Do you know what the weather's like in November in Washington State? It's rainy. It's cold. And I'm looking around going, why did I come back here? Why didn't I just extend in Okinawa, right? But it was time to go. Um, went, went to the Halo team. Obviously, we're, we're not going to jump in the wintertime. But uh, I, I did like Washington State for a lot of reasons. The weather was not one of them. I got to tell you, because I'm not a fair weather guy, but you know what? San Diego is a really nice place to be year round. Amen to that, man. There's not a whole lot of San Diego has got to be one of my favorite places in the world. And I think it's, it's probably because of that skydive school, no doubt. Um, but for our listeners out there, Jay, for maybe if you didn't catch the beginning, Jay has been somewhat running the tactical air operations school for a long time. And uh, Jay, how did you end up? actually going to that school as an instructor let's fast forward a little bit um, okay. yeah sure. did you did you actually go there as a green beret at first or were you a civilian had you retired how, how did that work all right let's put it all in perspective then so at fort lewis i do three years there and i rotated back to fort bragg from there i worked in the warrant officer training detachment because they had built a, a training detachment and i became the the uh, it wasn't the commander. I think they called me, well, they, they might've called me the, the commander or whatever, but I had about seven other warrant officers working for me and we were training candidates to become warrant officers, right? They would go to warrant officer candidate school at Fort Rucker, six weeks there, come to us. And we would put them through uh, about 12, 14 weeks more training and then send them out to their aid detachments. Uh, from there though, uh, a very good friend of mine named Russ Weiler became the commander of the military free fall school. And it just so happened that I'm in seventh group. It's 1980. And uh, the military free fall committee at the time, not the school, but the committee had sent some of their guys over to Indonesia to run a free fall um, MTT. 
So they needed instructors to work at the schoolhouse. So myself, uh, Charles Wesley, and one other guy came over. We were already free fall jump masters. We are, we had, I had 300 jumps then, right? 300 jumps. And I had experience. So they literally put me through a little bit of training and then gave me two students. So I, I, I became a military free fall instructor. My eye number is 120, right? They're up in the 800 now, but it was kind of weird. So because of that, I was actually going to leave seventh group and go to the free fall committee to work. But in, so that would have been around November, maybe uh, October, November of 1980. They had a fatality a guy named Hardy rolled up in his parachute. They closed the school and they had those guys that were free fall instructors working static line jump master program for like the next year and a half. So had I gone over there, I wouldn't be jumping out of planes. I would be running, you know, ground training. So I didn't do it. I stayed in seventh group, learned more about how to do my job that moved forward to 1984, 83 timeframe. The warrant officer program opens up. I become a warrant officer, Okinawa, Fort Lewis, back to Bragg. But the whole time you don't lose your, your MFFI number. It, it stays with you. Right? So here I am in 1992 and Russ Weiler talked to me about coming over. So I became the first special forces technician or warrant officer to be the safety officer for the free fall school. So again, another one of those first timers, right? Wow. And Jay, you talked about that was at Fort Bragg. That was at Fort Bragg at the time. Wow. So, so now they do wind tunnel at Fort Bragg and then they send guys over to Yuma or they go over to San Diego. Check this out. They have a wind tunnel at Yuma proving ground. And it's named after George Banner, a special forces soldier that died in combat. Uh, it's a beautiful tunnel. It's probably one of the, the newest ones out there. It's extremely powerful. It's 16 feet and a 16 and a half feet across. You can put a bunch of people in there. So they don't go to brag anymore. Wow. But in, in uh, 95, the decision was made to move west. So Fort Bragg, we're leaving Bragg. We're in, you know, part and parcel. Everybody's moving. The commander... And the sergeant major, the, the, basically, they were leaving. So they kept me on. So here I've got three years at committee, or I'm sorry, three years at the school, right? But they said, can you extend on for a couple more years? And I said, sure, I can. Yeah, it hurt me. Let me jump out of planes, right? So we moved to, to uh, Yuma Proving Ground in July of 95. Okay, how hot is it in Yuma in July of 95, right? Over 110. Oh, it's crazy, crazy weather. So we moved from Fort Bragg, very humid, out to the driest climate you can possibly have. And you're talking like 25, 30 families moving out. But when we set up shop in Yuma, everything started changing. Because like you said, at the time, we didn't have all the facilities. So we would sign people in at Fort Bragg. They would go to the wind tunnel. They'd learn packing. They'd get their, their classes and things like that for the first week. Come to Yuma Proving Ground, and we'd jump with them for three weeks. And it worked out just fine. We had the good air support. The weather was perfect year round. So it was the right choice. In the meantime, you know, the move was afoot to eventually set up a wind tunnel and that got built. It's in operation right now and it's, and it's running great. Uh, you've got instructors there that came through. Some of them came through training when I was there as a safety officer, right? And they, so they remember me. How, what is that? Living vicariously through your kids? Is that what it is? Yeah, that, that sounds about right, Jay. And <laughs> Jay, you brought up earlier 
um, a, a fatality. Um, and, and our listeners out there, most of them are training for special operations. They haven't gone through the pipeline yet, but getting Halo, getting free fall qualified is, is big for them. That's something that would be all of their goals. So for our listeners out there, Jay, um, what are, what are some of the, the most dangerous uh, aspects of military free fall operations and, and how, how can somebody mitigate that and, and jump safely? Um, I had one malfunction. I had about 300 jumps, one malfunction, and it was a civilian skydive. Uh, it was probably my fault. Never had a malfunction doing military free fall operations. It went very smooth. So what's, what's your thoughts and your wisdom for our listeners out there on that, Jay? Well, it's just like anything else. We, we have our ORM operational risk management in place. So we do have the, the, the items that are, you know, check the box items like, yes, we will use the wind tunnel because it could reduce the potential for somebody to be unstable, especially at pull time, because that could create a malfunction. So everything we do is designed around that is to, is to try to make it the safest atmosphere to be in. But you know, as well as I do, it's still high risk training because impact at a high rate of speed, you're not going to survive that. You can put an AAD on your main and your reserve, and they could both malfunction. There's no guarantees of anything. So that said, we would always make sure that we brief properly, we train properly, we tested properly before they actually made jumps. Uh, The wind tunnel is a great tool, of course, because it helps with that body stability thing. Uh, Exits, we're still there's still issues with exits because when they come out, it's the first time they've gotten out of an aircraft in that attitude. So sometimes they'll flip over, but they recover. So we're, we're, we're really not seeing much of that going on. Uh, we still, every so often, like you said, we might have a guy that gets into say a spin or gets on their back, can't get, get off their back. But the, the instructors are all trained in what we call accelerated free fall techniques. So they know how to stop spins. They know how to roll students over they know how to deploy for students. So everything we can possibly do, at least what we know now today is in place to, to try to make sure that that student survives that jump. And fortunately, right. Unfortunately at the free fall school, there were, there were fatalities in different occasions for different reasons. Uh, we had an instructor fatality in 96 at Yuma because the instructor had uh, he, he had a, a strobe light, on his harness and it was attached up with that real strong lanyard, right? That the strobe light had attached to the, like the flight suit, the strobe light lanyard came out of the, came uh, undone. So it created a bit of a loop. So the strobe light still attached to his body. This, the, this lanyard is outside. He reaches through the lanyard and to throw a pilot chute out, right? Hand deployed pilot chute. It goes through there. And then the, the container can't get out. It can't go through that space. So now he's in a horseshoe malfunction. Uh, he tries to deploy his reserve. The reserve fouls into the main. He goes in at a high rate of speed. We didn't foresee that because we, we didn't foresee that the guy would do something that he shouldn't be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Jay, it makes a lot of sense. And really what it comes down to and what, what for our listeners out there, what Jay's trying to say is that you get these safety procedures down and it's really about developing that muscle memory and being able to execute those procedures. And if you execute those procedures, your chances of having a safe jump are are exponentially high. You're talking 99.999%. But then when you throw in military free-for-all operations and 
you have multiple jumpers and you're jumping equipment and you're doing it at night and maybe you have an unmarked DZ, then you obviously add a lot more risk in. So Jay, um, another question for you, what is kind of the, for our listeners out there, what's kind of the, the purpose of military freefall operations and, and how does it get used effectively? We just saw this mission over in Africa where there was a hostage rescued and uh, you had a tier one uh, team, Dev grew and, and some other operators attached with that team that, that did a jump um, oh, yeah. in, into Africa and were, were able to recover this hostage. So um, how, how does this all work, Jay? What's the functionality of it? Well, um, the special mission units all have designated teams just for that, you know, for hostage rescue and anti-terrorism and things like that. The one that the mission you're talking about was successful. There was one that wasn't successful. The actual, the, the, uh, the prize uh, was killed by a hand grenade that was thrown by one of the, the operators, uh, unfortunately. But usually, in, and especially in third world countries, they don't have the, the technology to determine that somebody's coming across. So you're, you're getting out of a covered aircraft at, say, 35,000 feet. You're free falling down to 24, 25,000 feet. You're deploying your main parachute. You're doing a offset jump where you're traveling, what, 16 miles, whatever it is. You're landing. Nobody knows you're there right? There was no noise from helicopters. There was no noise from other transport type devices. They've landed, they cache their equipment, they move forward, they take care of the, take care of business. They're usually exfilled by rotary wing because that's the easiest thing to do. Once you're, once you're on site, once you're making noise, who cares, right? Bring in what you need to get out of there. Uh, there was a mission, actually, the, one of the, I want to say the Bin Laden mission was supposed to be a halo operation, but they opted out and they went, went in by helicopter. But that was originally going to be, it's de- I think it's declassified. It's, I'm pretty sure it's declassified. I'm pretty sure it is. But originally, that was supposed to be a freefall mission. And it ended up being a helo operation. And Jay, you see PJ's doing a lot of jumps in the water for the humanitarian side of the house, right? So right. they're kicking out boats and, and jumping in and inflating the boat. Um, do you have any experience doing um, kind of testing and development of equipment and parachutes and whatnot throughout your career? Yeah, well, we used to, you know, I mean, on a scuba team too, we used to do uh, rubber duck operations where we would do static line. We'd kick boats out uh, and then follow the boats out static line. You could do the same thing with free fall equipment from 5,000 feet because you didn't want to get too low. The Navy practices that quite often too, especially EOD and the SEAL teams. They practice specifically that because they'll kick their boats, jump in, land, sink their equipment, get on the boats, do over the horizon navigation. But for the pararescue guys, you know, they used to, the, the mission they used to have was uh, a satellite, not satellite recovery, but uh, the uh, NASA space, space shuttle recovery. Exactly. Yeah. So they would do the capsule recovery stuff. And uh, obviously they, they needed to have that capability to, for free fall and scuba operations and everything else because they might have a down pilot that they've got to go get. You know, every, everybody, everything revolves around the mission, right? It really does. So the guys that, that come into the special operations community today, there's no guarantees they're going to go to free fall school. There's no guarantees they'll go to scuba school. There's no guarantees they'll, they'll even get through training, right? But in effect, uh, if, they, if they keep their nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and they keep moving forward, you know, a door might open and then they just need to take that opportunity. So Jay, you went from being enlisted to um, being a warrant officer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about not only being a Green Beret, you obviously have to be a good leader and a, and a good instructor and a good teacher. That's really the bread and butter 
Um, but you also ended up being a warrant officer. So you are a leader on your team. For our listeners out there, can you give maybe some some advice on what it is to be an effective leader or just maybe any tips out there that you picked up over your career um, that you could tell yourself before you went through? Okay. Well, here's a, here's a, here's a real simple thing. You know, the old adage of lead by example, it still holds true. There's nothing. I don't care if it's sweeping a floor. You pick up a broom and say, let's get this done. They're not going to say no because you're leading the way. Uh, when Whenever we move forward, that's how we should be. We should be the ones to say, let's get this done. I don't have to order somebody to do something um, that I wouldn't do. That's key. So here's, here's another little, you're going to love this. So I'm at Fort Lewis and I'm getting ready to come back to Bragg and I'm going to, I'm going to be working in the warrant officer training program. And I wanted to make SEER school a requirement. If they didn't go through SEER school, they needed to. Well, to do that, I went through SEER school. So here I am, right? And it's the 80s. And I go through SEER school because I, you know, I thought it was a good idea. And, uh, and people were looking at me like, well, you don't have to do this. You're W3. And uh, why are you doing this? And I said, because I'm leading by example. So I learned a little bit about myself in that program too, right? Because we, we do. It kind of peels that onion back pretty hard. And you realize real quickly what you do or do not like. That's for sure. And then moving forward from there, you know, when I became the training detachment commander, I said, we're all going through SEER school. They couldn't say no because I said, I've been there. Let's get it done. So they understood it. They appreciated the fact that we made them do it. If guys had already been through SEER school that were in the training pipeline for the warrant officer program, then they would go to uh, ATAC, uh, like the defensive or offensive driving courses, stuff like that. You know, so we would still get them some other training. They wouldn't just sit around for a couple of weeks. But that's that's the biggest thing that I could I would would share with people is you need to be prepared to lead by example. If you can't do that, then you don't need to be a leader. That's you powerful, Jay. You can't yeah. lead back. Yeah, that's powerful. I have a little saying for our leaders, and it is don't ever give an order that you haven't already done yourself or aren't willing to do yourself. And here's a guy who would go pick up a broom with his guys and uh, say, Hey, let's clean. Instead of saying, Hey, you guys go clean, let's clean. And I think that's kind of the, the big difference is, is doing it together. It's interesting. Um, over in uh, camp bastion slash camp leatherneck in Helmand province, Afghanistan, you would see the Brits, their leadership would go in and they would eat first. And then the, their, their men would come in and eat after versus in the American military, you just see, yeah, it's just the opposite. So you, you see that servant leadership. It's a powerful thing, no doubt. I mean, if you look through history, the, the organizations or the units, the, the different armies that actually were successful, their leaders were in front. Those were successful. The guys that were in the back, no. Nah. You're moving chess pieces on a board, not good, not good. So the successful people are always going to be those folks that are not, that are very much willing to take that round for you or me, right? Amen, Jay. Here you are still doing it and still leading yeah. the front. Jay, tell us, <laughs> tell us about what you're doing now, man. I mean, like I said in the beginning, I roll up to the drop zone and you, you have a couple students that you're working with on your weekend and then you're still teaching at TAC Air. You're still running the program there, a manager, a director, uh, for lack of better words. Jay, tell, us, tell our listeners what you're doing now and how many jumps do you have, Jay? I work as a chief instructor for the military side. So for static line, military static line or military free fall, we run both programs. Uh, I also got a counterpart that 
So we kind of tag team in and out, right? So I'll run a class and then he'll run class and I'll run a class and so on. The reason that I'm working on the civilian side is I need to make some extra money. right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm over there and I'm doing tandems and, you know, doing AF accelerated free fall and working with students. And I do like that stuff. I mean, I can't sit still. I got to be out there doing things, staying active. Um, so here, like I said, we get normal procedures would be, we would get folks in the pipeline, just like whether it's air force pipeline or Navy pipeline, we get pipeline guy. They come to us, they go through military static line first. Our static line program is five days long. First three days are classroom and uh, what we call round robin training sessions, you know, aircraft procedures, PLFs, of course, you know, things like that. And then we go to the jump phase, which is the last couple of days. They'll do five jumps in two days. They're done. The following Monday, they come in to see us. We're now we're doing military free fall. They sign in. Uh, we give them classroom work on Monday through three classes on Monday, plus packing Tuesday through Friday. They're doing wind tunnel work. And we operate out of the San Diego tunnel and out of the Oceanside tunnel. Uh, we just had a, this class that we're in session with has 45 in it. Each student will get one hour of wind tunnel time. Okay. So do the math on that one. 45 to 450 hours, right? Or whatever it comes to, or 45 hours. Yeah. It's a lot of tunnel time. It's a lot of tunnel time. So we break it down. So they get 15 minutes per day, Tuesday through Friday. We're there with them during their, their tunnel experiences. They'll fly parachutes, drop bags with uh, tunnel rigs that are approximately the same weight and, and dimension and everything. They'll fly with NVGs in the tunnel. So they get over that fear. Uh, we don't put a weapon on them because it might catch in the netting or stuff, but we do have them fly with a parachute drop bag. So you get an idea of how that's going to set up. They come out of there and then they're in their jump phase. Uh, and quite honestly, we don't even hold on to them. We used to hold, do harness hold exits initially. Right. But we're not even doing that anymore. We're actually having them dive out of the aircraft and we're, uh, just jumping out. We're, everybody wears cameras. We're videoing them from start to finish. We're debriefing them after their jumps, uh, tell them what they need to do for the next event and moving forward. So like this week, they've already, they've done three jumps so far. They'll do another six jumps this week. The last jump they do, uh, the, the last two jumps they do, one will be NVG day. So that they get uh, introduced to that, a familiarization jump. No, do an O2 familiarization jump also. And then next week we start into combat equipment and ramp aircraft and things like that. So it's, it's all geared toward progression. So they're still crushing it. Is it about 25 jumps they get? I mean, that's about what we got. Anywhere from 21 to 25 jumps. Yeah. Or if you're like me and, and you forget to pull your parachute on the first jump and uh, you got to go rehack it again. And uh, I don't know, Jay, are there still uh, padding your logbook is what you were doing. You were oh padding. yeah. But I was padding that. I wanted to rack up those jumps a little bit, Jay, but uh, I remember at the time there were some uh, former SAS guys there. So a lot of heavy British accents there at TAC air. Is that still the case or not? Not so much anymore. The guy that was here then was Simon. He, he had been a, a tier one unit SBS. And you also had Andy Peckett, who had been a Royal Marine Commando. Yeah. And there was one other guy. And I, well, now I'm I had like, Brett Whitcomb. Remember Brett Whitcomb? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. You had, uh, but you had a couple, you know, you had that flavoring. Today, um, it's kind of changed a little bit with respect to who we have as instructors. We still have uh, some good civilian, straight civilian instructors that are AFF instructors, too. Uh, we also have um, the military guys. Uh, right now, we're not... What's changed is this. 
U.S. SOCOM made a determination that you can't do an inspection, a job master personal inspection on a person unless you've been through a recognized course. So like I went through jump master, right? So I can do first checks. Then an active duty military or a GS employed civilian from their unit has to do the second check. That's an example. I can no longer perform the duties as a primary jump master on board the aircraft, right? So I can't give the jump commands in the back of the aircraft, but they have us flying safety. So we're clearing the aircraft. So they're giving us some latitude, but only the guys that have been former military have been trained. The straight civilians, they can jump students and that's it. That's pretty much it. Understood. And for our listeners out there, retired Navy SEAL sniper Aaron Evans was my class leader when I was going through TAC Air in 2010. Jay Stokes was uh, the director of the course at the time and was running the show. And uh, he was on our podcast as well. Aaron Evans, go back and, and give him a listen. Uh, shout out to you, Aaron. And uh, when you think about it, the course, when you think about video analysis and whatnot, I feel like that was kind of just getting started around that time, Jay, you guys had, you guys had video analysis for us. And after every jump, we would come back and we would debrief it. <laughs> I remember on that first jump, man, I, I thought that I was getting practice touches and it had, and I had done practice touches through 5,000 feet. And all of a sudden I feel this, whoosh, and my parachute opens up and I'm like, oh man, I did not open that. That was my instructor. <laughs> so I get down on the ground and my crappy British accent here is Russell number 22. You failed to open your parachute. Uh, what you going to do? <laughs> Get right back on the aircraft. This time you're going to pull on your own, knock it out and get back up for jump number three. So I had to go back up there and rehack it, man. Pan the logbook, Jay. Yeah. You know, what's weird though. Now um, it's funny. You should you give them that story, but today, because we do an hour of tunnel time, we're doing a minute and a half per flight, right? Per person. Well, it's only a 60, you know, 45, 50 second flight uh, for the real world. So on occasion, we'll have to throw the pull signal because they, they are kind of hanging out. They're not really being altitude aware because of all that tunnel time. So that is kind of a drawback. But for the most part, they're doing really well. They're yeah. doing much better in free fall itself. They're doing a lot better with the PDBs on too. Yeah. Well, I never made that mistake again. And for our listeners out there, Jay had used the acronym AAD earlier, and that's your, your Cypress computer. You guys will learn about it. And, and you set it to a, a certain altitude. And as long as you are going a certain speed through a designated altitude, which is usually around 1500 feet, it will actually cut your main parachute and deploy your reserve parachute for you. Your reserve parachute is packed in a different way to where it opens quicker. And so you'll have kind of a safer uh, landing um, for a lack of better words. So that would be the AAD that he was talking about. So it, these parachutes are, are extremely safe and it is a, an amazing piece of equipment. I'm sure you've seen a lot of evolution on the parachute uh, in your days there, Jay. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, back in the day, back in the 90s, when we were with the, the Cypress, the automatic activation device, which, you know, became a, the kind of the it's the norm now. It's the, it's state of the art is the norm. But back then we didn't trust it because the AADs that we were seeing, they weren't very um, they weren't very good. You know, they weren't consistent. They would fire. That's not good, Jay. Well, you know, but they were going through processes to try to build something. And then, so all of the free fall instructors at the school, we never jumped any kind of an automatic activation device on the reserve or the main. But then after we did have an instructor fatality, Frank Norberry Sr., uh, this would have been in 93. He got out of a DC-3 on a, a jump. He was, he was doing a, a group-led uh, setup 
the 10 jumpers or five jumpers that he was going to jump with had moved to the back of the aircraft. DC-3 went a little bit tail low. They powered up. He came out really hard and in, a, in an upright position or a, a presented, and he struck the tail section of the DC-3. Wow. And it, broke, it probably broke his neck at that point. He went Jeez, in, man. obviously. But after that, they said, we're going to put AADs on everybody. So a lot of the guys didn't want to do that, but we tried out the Cypress units. Uh, we borrowed some from the Golden Knights, as a matter of fact. We tried them out. And today, you can't, you can't go anywhere without you know, having an AAD on your system. That's just the way it is. So uh, unfortunate tragedy, but it created a, a situation where we got technology that actually worked and it supports us. It helps us to survive the next, the next uh, jump or the next series of jumps. Yeah. Things keep getting safer and safer, hopefully. So Jay is a a big part of that research and development and he's seen the evolution over the years. And uh, Jay, how many jumps do you have now total, my man? Can you even keep track of that, Jay? I would log every one of them. I have just, I need 40 jumps to make 27,000. 26,960 jumps, Jay. I can't count that high, Jay. I have no concept of that number. And you did 640 in one day incredible. We're talking to a living legend, uh, but an even better human being and a great friend and a great instructor. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us tonight, man. Any last words for our listeners out there before we sign off for the day? Uh, the only thing that I would, I would tell you is if you decide to go into the special operations community, you do need to be physically fit. You don't have to be in the best shape of your life, but you need to be physically fit. But better, more than that, you need to be mentally fit. You need to have the right attitude. If you have a poor attitude, don't even start down that road. The brain is a great thing and it can, it can help you to be successful or it can create a situation where you cannot be successful. So try not to let the brain damage or interfere with your, with your system. Uh, keep a good attitude and just drive on with it, right? Thanks, Jay. Amen to that, brother. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. And can't wait to get back out there to San Diego. I'll pop my head in the office, man. <laughs> All right. I will, I'll look forward to it. Okay. Okay, my man. Well, for our listeners out there, thank you for joining us here with Jay Stokes, legend. And shout out to our students who graduated their pipelines this week. We got Luis graduating the TACP pipeline. And we got Tristan and Seth graduating the SEAL pipeline, earning their tridents. Incredible accomplishments from you guys. Shout out to you. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review and a written review. This helps get our podcast out there. And until next time, we are out. Down.